Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Our uh, text today is uh, Psalm 23, maybe the most famous piece of scripture in, in history, verses 1 to 6. Psalm 23, 1 to 6. Hear the, hear the word of our, our Lord and our Savior. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the year 969 B.C., a, a thousand years before Christ, a, a war broke out between King David and his third son, Absalom. Second Samuel tells us Absalom had been preparing his rebellion against his father for four years. For four years, he'd been whispering in the ears of the leaders of, of uh, Judah and Israel about the injustice of of David for four years stabbing his father in the back. And finally, Absalom strikes. He, he raises an army, he declares himself king, and he marches on Jerusalem to dethrone his father and put the city to the sword. But David get, gets wind of Absalom's betrayal, and uh, with only minutes to spare, he uh, pulls a few things together. He calls together his most loyal servants and, and soldiers, and and David abandons the city. And David, as, as David flees, he, he turns east and, and goes through the Kidron Valley, which in Hebrew means valley of deep shadow or darkness. And through, it's, this, it's through this valley of darkness that David flees, and it takes him past uh, the Garden of Olives and, and onto the Mount Olivet. And, and there, as David trudges up the mountain, he weeps bitterly over the loss of his throne, over the betrayal of his son, and the sense that he's been abandoned by God. But David doesn't stop on the Mount of Olives. He goes over the mount, he goes through the wilderness, and eventually over the Jordan River. And I start with the description of this event from 2 Samuel because most Jewish scholars believe it's this event that led David to write Psalm 23. And Psalm 23 isn't the only psalm that uh, calls back to Absalom's betrayal. In Psalm 22, uh, David expresses crushing grief and anguish over the betrayal of his son. But then David's um, army routs the army of Absalom. Absalom is killed, and the rebellion is crushed at the Battle of Ephraim's Wood. And so David writes Psalm 24, which is a uh, a psalm of gratitude to, to God for restoring David to his throne. And so Psalms 22, 23, and 24 move from lament and deep betrayal and grief through rescue in Psalm 23 and then uh, to restoration in Psalm 24. 
But if all these psalms are, are portraits of David and, and some poetic ballad of some obscure king and some far-off rebellion, then they're not very relevant to us. They're, they're about as relevant to us as Homer's Iliad or, or Caesar's Gallic War. I mean, they may tell us about David's grief, his anguish. They may even tell us a little bit about God's provision for David. But they're not, um, they're not actually relative, relevant to our problems and what we're going through. They may be interesting and informative, but they don't really speak to, to us. Another way we can read Psalm 23, which, which isn't wrong, but I think it's inadequate, is, is if we see this as, as a story about ourselves. Um, and I'm not talking here about the Hallmark crowd. I'm talking about evangelicals and evangelical preachers who, who teach things like, um, like the story of David and Goliath is about you fighting the giant in your life, or, uh, or, or Esther standing up to Haman and Xerxes is about your stand against injustice, or that the story of the lion's den is really about you standing with Daniel. Sure, that makes it more relevant, but I don't think that's really what ultimately this is about. You know how to read the Old Testament, right? Everything in the Old Testament is just a pale shadow of really what's going on. It's really all about Jesus Christ. Every page, every scripture points to Christ. And, then, and we know that because Christ told us that. In John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So the real significance to us in Psalm 23 and all the rest of the Old Testament, for that matter, is that they're all ultimately about Christ. They're just rough sketches that Christ comes and, and turns into ultimate reality. Because the real author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit of God. And he wants us to see, I think, something amazing and, and compelling and wonderful in Psalm 23. I think David was aware of that. In, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23, we hear David's final words before his death. And, and in verse 2, he says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, and his word was on my tongue. I, I think David knows that God is speaking through him. I think he knows he's only a throne warmer for the true king that will be born as his offspring. And he knew that what he said and what he did would point to the true Christ. Now, normally we take a passage of Scripture and we go through it verse by verse or concept by concept, and that's exactly what we should do. That's, that's important. But the more I looked at Psalm 23 and its place between Psalm 22 and 24, the more I thought that to zero in verse by verse um, would be to miss a larger point that I think is important we understand. And that point is this, Psalm 23, along with his book in Psalms, Psalm 22 and 24, are really prayers prepared by Jesus Christ that he would pray a thousand years later to God the Father. To see what I mean, we're going to start with Psalm 22, uh, and, and we're going to put Psalm 23 in context. Back before the 12th century, when 
theologian started numbering the psalms, each psalm was actually known by its first phrase. That was the title of the psalm. And Psalm 22 starts with the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then the psalm goes on to describe something so horrible, there really is no parallel in David's life for it. The psalm describes an execution. And I've taken a few excerpts here uh, from Psalm 22 to show you what I mean. Uh, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And then 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And, this is, and then verses 14 through 18. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lot for my garment. Now let's be clear about this. We know more about David than we do just about any other figure in the Old Testament. From shepherd boy to king of Israel. And we see nowhere in David's life where he was pierced where he was mocked and ridiculed like this, where persecutors gambled for his clothes, or where he was executed. Where do we see those things? We see him a thousand years later as Christ is crucified on Calvary. And so it seems plain that a thousand years before the cross, writing by the Holy Spirit, David is pointing forward to, him, to, to, to Christ and his death. In preparing for this psalm, I was, was really interested in how Jews considered Psalm 22, this detailed uh, description of an execution. So, so I looked for how Jews explain the psalm and its obvious picture of, uh, of Jesus on the cross. And I happened across this passage in the, the Jewish Encyclopedia. Here's what the Jewish Encyclopedia says about Jesus' death. Whatever had been Jesus' anticipations, he bore the terrible tortures due to the strain and cramping of the internal organs with equanimity till almost the last, when he uttered the despairing and pathetic cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, the Aramaic form of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which showed that even his resolute spirit had been daunted by the ordeal. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying that even though Jesus and his disciples insisted he was the Messiah, that he finally broke from the pain on the cross and admitted that he had been forsaken by God. And the Jewish Encyclopedia goes on. This last utterance was in all its implications itself a disproof of the exaggerated claims made for him after his death by his disciples. No Messiah that Jews could recognize could suffer such a death. 
Isn't that interesting? The Jewish encyclopedia says that the cross, the very fact of the cross, disqualifies Jesus from ever being taken seriously as Messiah. And first, let me say that I think that's a perfectly understandable sentiment. In fact, I think by human standards, that's exactly the logical, reasonable conclusion you would draw. There is, at least by our standards, unlikely that we would ever think the most powerful being ever, an all-powerful being, would allow himself to be tortured and beaten and mocked and killed, especially in such a heinous way. Now, let's say I was a a great political consultant. Let's just say that. Okay, let's say you were a great political consultant, and, and someone asked you to write a plan to start the greatest movement in the history of the world. Would you say, hey, I have an idea. First, you get arrested. Then you get tortured. Then you die a really horrible death. Then your followers come along and start this great movement. You probably wouldn't write a plan like that, and if you did, your client would not be happy. That's not a great formula for starting the greatest religion in the history of the world. Look at the founder of every other religion. They all died of old age, most of them in their beds, highly regarded, wealthy. Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, Abraham, they were all old men, wealthy and full of years. Not Jesus. Captured, tortured, killed at age 33. Look, you can't treat Jesus like you do the human founders of every other religion. If God is who he claims he is, and if Jesus is who he claims he is, then he's not going to be what you expect. He's he's not going to be like any God we create. That makes sense, doesn't it? And Psalm 22 is startling because on the cross, Jesus points back 1,000 years to this psalm, which points forward a thousand years to him. How, how can I do that? Because David wasn't the author of Psalm 22. The Holy Spirit was the author. And while David may have been the human agent that penned it a thousand years earlier, Jesus knew he would pray this prayer on the cross. It, it even quotes the word of the crowd. It, it even quotes the word the crowd used to, to ridicule and mock Jesus. Listen to verses 7 and 8 in Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The King James Version Version says he was laughed to scorn. He was laughed at, mocked, ridiculed, despised. They laughed him to scorn. He died alone, betrayed, and bereft. Now look at Matthew 27, the account of Jesus' crucifixion. Um, in the New Testament. Verses 41, 42, and 43. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. They laughed him to scorn. And there on the cross he cries out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And in saying those words on the cross, he shows the the crowd's ridicule and scorn are actually fulfilling the precise prophecy of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 proves Jesus was exactly who he said he was. 
he was the Messiah, the anointed one of God. He, he might look helpless as they pierced his hands and feet, but in fact, he's powerfully fulfilling his own scripture. Look at verse 16. Dogs surround me. A, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. It might seem as though he's lost the battle and there's nothing left but surrender, but, but in fact, he's, he's the conquering hero who, who proves he's in complete control. As they gamble for his clothes, he might seem like a figure of disgust. But he's actually showing that he is the true Messiah promised of old, the one who must suffer, who must die, and who will be raised again. Imagine that. A bleeding Christ nailed to a cross, surrounded by mockers, who scorn him and taunt him. And he says, look, Father, we got him right where we want him. And so I spent more than half my time talking about Psalm 22 and a sermon about Psalm 23, but... Um, but I want to spend what's left of my time on really just three things that, that are so important we understand about Psalm 23. And those three things are these. Christ's presence, Christ's purpose, and Christ's promise. First, Christ's presence. And, and this one's quick because we've already said Psalm 23 are the words of Christ to God the Father written a thousand years before Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The Lord is my shepherd. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. My cup overflows, or, or as the old Geneva Bible put it, my cup runneth over. How, how can we know this is the prayer of Jesus to the Father? If Psalm 22 is a prayer of the cross, and it certainly is, and if Psalm 24 is all about Jesus, the King of glory who ascends to the throne, and we do know that, then it's only natural to see that the central character remains the same throughout these three psalms. And so the, the one speaking in Psalm 22, the psalm of the cross, and the one speaking in Psalm 24, the psalm of the ascension, is the same one speaking in Psalm 23, the psalm of resurrection. That's interesting, is it not? Lament, rescue, restoration, cross, resurrection, ascension. Here in Psalm 23 our, 23, our God Jesus prays to our God the Father as he faces the valley of the shadow of death and comes through to the other side into feasting glory. That's the presence of Christ. Second, Christ's purpose. Let's talk about the the, the, the light Psalm 23 sheds on Christ's purpose. You remember Brett's sermon a few weeks ago about uh, the third question of BRCC's catechism? Uh, what's the central message of the Bible? And the central message is that God is bringing glory to himself through the work and person of Jesus Christ as he redeems and saves a people. We see in Psalm 23, and in Psalms 22 and 24, the book in this psalm, how Christ is bringing glory to God and redeeming a people. And he's doing it by joining our suffering, living the perfect life we couldn't, dying the death that was rightfully ours, then rising out of the dark valley into abundant blessing. Have you, have you heard of protest atheism? There's a fellow named Stephen Fry who's a British actor and writer and commentator who's part of this protest atheism movement. And, and when he was asked what question he'd most like to ask God, here's what he said. Bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you create a world with such misery? That's not our fault. It's utterly evil. To Fry and those who subscribe to protest atheism, the question isn't does God exist as much as it is 
If he does, why would we want to have anything to do with him? Protest is, atheism isn't really believe, belief or disbelief in God so much as it is rejection of God. To put it in the words of actor Robert De Niro, if God exists, he has some explaining to do. It's always interesting to me that these folks discovered suffering and evil and act like this is some new um, kind of game of gotcha. Uh, it's some sort of proof for their atheism, as though religious scholars haven't been dealing with the issues of suffering and evil for thousands of years. So what's God's answer? Well, what does he say to Stephen Fry and Robert De Niro? What's his explanation? Well, he doesn't actually give us an explanation in, in, in these psalms. He, he doesn't answer the question, why is there suffering? He, he could. There are, many of, there are plenty of other places in the Bible where he tells us exactly why there's suffering and, and who's to blame for it. But that's not what he does here. He doesn't give us an answer. He gives us a person. In, in these prayers, Jesus gives us himself. Through the Holy Spirit, he's giving us, notice, a thousand years Notice that he's going to share in our predicament and our pain. And so Christ comes and, and he joins in our suffering and, and says what you and I say, my God, my God, where are you? Why are you so far away? What about my pain? What about my anguish? Why don't you do something? Remember David escaping Absalom's army? through the Kidron Valley, the valley of darkness and death. David's, David's on the run, and, and David's, David is, is heartbroken as he escapes. Within minutes of his life, he crosses the Kidron and, and climbs up the, the Mount of Olives. And, and 2 Samuel says he's in tears and, and grief. Well, Jesus walked the Kidron Valley too. John 18 tells us that a thousand years after David flees, Jesus follows the same old... Escape, escape route. On Thursday night, after the Last Supper with his 12 disciples, Jesus crosses the Kidron Valley, the valley of deadly darkness, and walks on to the Garden of Gethsemane. So what's the difference between David's walk and, and the walk Jesus made? The difference is Luke 22. David keeps going past the Mount of Olives, through the wilderness, across the Jordan River, in deep, deep anguish over the betrayal of his son, but he doesn't stop. David escapes capture and death, not Jesus. Luke 22 tells us that Jesus stops on the mountain. He falls on his knees and he prays in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Like David, Jesus weeps. In fact, his anguish is so great, his sweat falls like blood. But unlike David, Jesus doesn't escape. And, and unlike Absalom, he doesn't betray the Father. No, they're in the garden. Jesus remains faithful, and he accepts the cup of suffering from his Father. He doesn't even try to escape. He surrenders himself. And when he does, he's brought back to Jerusalem, back through the Kidron Valley, to truly face death's dark valley. And he's left alone in the darkness to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think Jesus doesn't know your suffering? He's abandoned by his family, his religion, his nation, his people, his closest friends. He's abandoned by his father. What the Jewish encyclopedia misses 
is that it wasn't the physical suffering that broke Jesus Christ. It was the emotional, spiritual heartbreak he experienced when the Father rejected him, cut him off. For the first time in all of eternity, he's separated from God, God the Father. The Father abandons the Son. And if we're reluctant to admit that, then we minimize the suffering of Christ. It's not like Jesus only goes part way. It's not like there's a safety net over the bottomless pit and he just goes down so far and then bounces back up. No, he experiences infinite hell for infinite sin. Yes, he's fully God, the eternal son of the Father. But God the Son veils his divinity so that he can pay once for all time for sin. Isn't it incredible? Isn't it unbelievable to think that God the Son would take God-forsakenness into himself? He, he doesn't just allow you to pray in your God-forsakenness. He takes it into himself and prays it back to, to God the Father. It's unbelievable. But it's exactly what these psalms tell us. And, and listen, going the way of the protest atheists, rejecting God, that doesn't get rid of suffering. Not in the least, it only makes things worse. It makes suffering the last word. It, it makes suffering ultimate reality. Suffering wins. Don't you see, if, if Stephen Fry and, and Robert De Niro are right, then suffering is only natural. It's to be expected. It's survival of the fittest. It's, it's dog eat dog. There's no right, there's no wrong, there's no morality. Social justice, it's a joke. There is no justice. With the protest atheists, you know what the cosmos' message to you is? Suffer. But if Jesus is who he says he is, there's another way. Because with Jesus, suffering doesn't get the last word. I mentioned earlier these psalms could answer the question, if God is almighty and if God is all good, how could he allow suffering? They don't. And they don't because there are lots of other places where the Bible does answer that question. And you and I know the answer. <laughs> the answer is us. Evil came into the world because of us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a, Solzhenitsyn was a, a famous Russian novelist in Stalin's time. And, and he was an outspoken critic of, so, of Soviet communism and was sentenced under Stalin to the gulag for, for eight years. And afterwards, here's what he wrote. If only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Do you see, Solzhenitsyn was brutalized and beaten and, and worked without mercy. He didn't blame Stalin. He didn't blame the guards. He, he didn't blame some, some group of anonymous tyrants. No, he understood we're all capable of evil. It's one of the reasons he became a Christian during his stay in the Gulag. The evil in my heart and the evil in this world are inextricably linked. The world is messed up because I'm messed up. But here's what the Psalms tell us. Jesus came for a purpose. God could have prevented us from from turning away from him and descending into darkness. He could have stopped us, but he doesn't. He pursues us. He follows us. He 
didn't leave us in our foolishness to suffer. He went with us, and he walks the valley of the shadow of death. So you don't have to walk it alone. That's the presence of the, and the purpose of Jesus Christ, and here's the promise. This psalm tells us that Jesus walks through the valley, but he isn't afraid because he knows what's waiting on the other side. And it isn't a funeral. It's a feast. Look, if Psalm 23 is just a, a poem on a Hallmark card, then you and I have a lot of trouble. Because when you're walking through the valley of death, a poem ain't going to cut it. You, you, need a, you need a champion. You, you, need a, you need a savior. But if Psalm 23 are the words of Jesus Christ, then, then you can know death doesn't get the last laugh. Jesus gets the last laugh. Because death isn't a funeral. God turns it into a feast. That's what he does. That's who he is. That's the business he's in. And he loves his business. Because he drank the cup of suffering down to the very dregs. Now his cup runs over. Suffering is not hopeless. It doesn't have the last word. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows, or my cup runneth over. This isn't just the future hope of the, of the Messiah as he faces down death in the dark valley. This is the promise he makes a thousand years before the cross. A thousand years before the cross, he promises he'll walk the valley, he'll punch through the shroud of death and pain, and he'll come out the other side anointed to a cup runs over. And it's true, I know it's true, because a thousand years later, the greatest suffering of all time happened. God the Son endured the infinite hell of infinite sin. The greatest suffering inflicted on the greatest person. But on the other side of that valley, on the other side of Good Friday, was Easter Sunday. The greatest suffering achieved the greatest glory. Look, I, I don't know why, uh, why Jesus lets a maniac kill 22 people in El Paso, Texas. But I do know this. God isn't interested in painting over this perishing, broken world. He's not interested in redecorating. He wants to renew. He wants to rebuild. He wants to take us through the valley and punch a hole through that shroud of pain and suffering and death. And he wants us to experience new life so that we can join him at a feast. And as his cup runneth over, our cup overflows. Let me just ramble for one second here about uh, application. A hundred years or so ago, the London Times did a contest and and, uh, and they asked this question, what's wrong with the world? And they invited people to submit essays. And of all the hundreds of essays they received, the, they received, the shortest was from G.K. Chesterton, just two words. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton responded, I am. Do you see that your ultimate problem is you? <laughs> Do you understand the problem of this world is sin? It's, it's our turning away from God and, God and our trying to take God's place. And God didn't stop us from turning away. He allowed us to make the choice, and we ruptured the relationship. We, we brought mayhem and calamity and disorder into the world. 
second. Have you weighed the, the valley against the overflowing cup? Yes, we've sinned and disfigured the image of God, but Christ has brought restoration. Christ compared the deathly dark valley against the flowing cup, and he calculated the flowing cup was worth the valley. And if that's Christ's calculation, then surely whatever valley we're walking, the victory will be worthwhile. Even, for, even the forsakenness of the Father was worth the cup. How, how, how puny and small will our pains and sufferings appear once we've experienced the, 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 the feast? Third, are you in a connect group? Connect groups are what we call small groups here at uh, Bay Ridge Christian Church. They're, they're where, we, where we walk our lives together. Um, we discuss scripture, we join in fellowship, but we also get to know one another. We share each other's suffering and pain, and, and we pray for one another. We also share each other's joy, and, 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 we, and we praise God for his presence and for his purpose and for his promise. If you're, in a, if you're not in a connect group, you need to join one. You can go online. There, there, there's a list of them uh, uh, on the website. You can, you can go to the Welcome Center. Uh, we have one here that meets after church across the hall. You're, you're welcome uh, every Sunday. Um, and so today we're going to come to the table. And as we do, we're going we're to be reminded that though, like Davis, we suffer, Christ suffered more. His anguish was greater. On the cross, not only did the world reject Jesus, we thrust him up into heaven, and heaven went dark and rejected him. The Father rejected him. He took the wrath for sin that should have been ours and gave us the righteousness that belonged only to him. And on Easter Sunday, he rose, conquering sin and hell and death once and for all. We're all going to suffer, Christian or not. The question is not whether you suffer, it's where you're standing when you do. Whatever you're going through, look at Jesus Christ and ask yourself whether you can trust this suffering God. There is no other hope. Without this Jesus, suffering becomes ultimate reality. You're on your own. But with Jesus, you never suffer alone. And when you see him on the cross, there you see him at his strongest. Because if scripture is right and the source of all life is Jesus Christ, then where we see him most vividly is when he's pouring that life out for us. In John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus asks Martha, just before he's about to turn Lazarus's funeral into a celebration. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then Jesus asked Martha, and he asked us all, do you believe? That's his promise to us. If you believe, then the, the valley of darkness uh, doesn't end in death. It doesn't end in a funeral. It ends in a feast. It ends in an overflowing cup. If you believe that, and, and you understand that Christ is your only hope, then 
you are welcome at this table. This is not BRCC's table. This is the table of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that or you don't know what I'm talking about, then please see me after. I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to talk to you or one of the other elders. If you don't believe that, just let the elements pass because this is a meal for those of us who know Jesus Christ is our only hope, our only Lord, our only Savior. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and what he has done to restore us to you, to himself and to your Holy Spirit. We know we are unworthy and we recognize our only hope is your love and Christ's sacrifice. And, and so it's to Christ's promise we claim. And in thanksgiving for that promise, we take this meal. Amen. Please, as you uh, take the elements, hold on to them. We'll, we'll uh, take them together. As always, uh, there's gluten-free. If, uh, if you'd prefer, just raise your hand. And as the elements are being passed, I encourage you to consider our Lord who came into the suffering world, walked that valley of death, punched through the shroud of pain, suffering, and, and, uh, and death, so you and I could join him in a feast. All honor and all glory. You created all things and you proclaimed they were good and, and you created us in your image and, and to glorify, glorify and enjoy you forever. But like our father Adam, we rebelled exchanging your priceless glory for our sinful desires. In taking this bread, we confess your infinite glory and perfection and our terrible sin and desperate need. Look with mercy on us now because of the broken body of our Lord Jesus, for we are your people through him. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, you are the eternal Son of God, sharing glory with the Father and the Spirit before time and creation. But you humbled yourself, taking flesh, becoming fully human, and entering our sick and perishing world so you could rescue us from sin. Living the perfectly righteous life we could not, and then accepting the bitter cup of wrath that was rightfully ours, you became sin for fallen humanity, died on a cross, suffered separation from the Father, then rose on the third day to conquer sin, death, and Satan. All while forgiving us who had been your enemies and clothing us in your perfect righteousness and restoring us to right relationship with God. And in, in taking this cup, we give you thanks, receiving your gift in faith, embracing you as Savior and Lord. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for your great work in applying Jesus' redeeming grace to us, his people. For though we were lost, you regenerated us, lifting us from death to new life. 
So we ask in the name of Christ, help us to see your presence and provision so that our faith might grow, we might love God more fully, and we might serve him more faithfully. Proclaiming the gospel of Christ to a hurting and broken world. We ask this in the name of Jesus, for the glory of God and for our good. Amen. Benediction today is from 2 Corinthians, verses 13 and 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And God's people said, Amen. Go forth in the name and the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.